Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-build initiative that is co-hosted in a partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're doing a deep dive discussion to learn about the work of the United Way of Salt Lake and the Promise Partnership, a cradle-to-career initiative to support youth in Utah. In this talk, we learn about the goals of the Promise Partnership and what their team has learned so far when they adjusted their backbone staffing models to build in more peer support and mentorship. Joining us today to share their experiences are Marisol Perez-Gonzalez, Stephanie Rokic, and Alexis Bucknam from United Way of Salt Lake. They share what they have learned so far trying out the staffing model and what they recommend to other organizations considering new ways to support backbone staff. Moderating this discussion is Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splensky-Juster. Let's listen in. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast with the Collective Impact Forum Network. I am Jennifer Juster, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, and so happy to be hosting today's conversation with wonderful leaders from the United Way of Salt Lake. Today, we will be exploring the topic of staffing the backbone role, and the folks from United Way of Salt Lake and their work on the Promise Partnership have brought a lot of creativity and are here to share some learning with us about how they have approached staffing that backbone role. In today's conversation, I will be joined by Marisol Perez-Gonzalez, Stephanie Rokic, and Alexis Bucknam to explore this conversation. So before we begin talking about the work of the Promise Partnerships and also the backbone work, I would love to meet the three of you. So I will open the floor and ask if you could all introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what brought you to this work. Why don't we start with you, Alexis? Thank you. Um, so I got into this work through an interesting path. I worked in community engagement in higher education for about 20 years. And one of the things that we were beginning to examine um, when I left higher ed was we have had this commitment to our communities and to the public purpose of higher education for quite a long time and we still haven't been seeing a lot of improvement in the um, the social conditions of the communities that we care about that are uh, around our institutions. And so my I ran a small nonprofit focused on community engagement and higher education and it um, folded in 2018. And as I was looking at jobs moving forward, I had had some colleagues through my graduate work and um, some courses that I'd taken that have worked at United Way. And so I had a chance to look into working with the Promise Partnership through United Way and was uh, recruited to actually work in the post-secondary space around both uh, supporting secondary students to be college and career ready and to graduate high school and then also to complete college or post-secondary. And uh, I have grown from that role and moved into a senior director role 
and so have had a chance to also um, be more involved in the the thinking about our broader organization and the ways in which we work together. And so that's been really exciting. And one of the great things that I was able to do in that role was to recruit Marisol um, into the role that she's serving in now. So, um, so perhaps I'll invite Marisol to talk a little bit about what um, was attractive to her and what brought her into our work in our organization. Thank you, Alexis. And um, I would say what brought me to this work, um, I, a lot of the work that I have done um, stems from uh, my personal experience and work experience and my path to higher education as a first-generation um, student. So I actually have had the opportunity to be part of um, different programs, projects, student organizations uh, from a very young age um, of what I see now has culminated um, in many of the work that is done in the Promise Partnership. So after working with uh, youth in foster care and first-generation students at, the, um, at my previous job, um, I began to look at where and how all the different work that is done to support different communities uh, becomes a big picture. And so that's where um, I have seen this work being done with the Promise Partnership. And I now have the privilege to work alongside Alexis and my supervisor, Jessica Miller, to do work around post-secondary outcomes. And um, it has been pretty exciting to see how it all culminates together. Um, and be able to to see all the work that is done um, by different partners and how uh, we can collaboratively um, come to improving outcomes for um, the Promise Partnership population. And Stephanie, we'd love to meet you as well. Great, thank you. So I came to this work in a bit different way. In 2012, I had been doing volunteer management for a small nonprofit. And I left that job to do a six-month fellowship with a political campaign doing community organizing. And through that, I realized how much I loved both volunteer management and community organizing. And at that time in 2012, I started working for United Way of Salt Lake in their volunteer um, department. And through that time, I kind of grown with the organization and all of the changes that we've had in our collective impact approaches over the years. And now I manage our community engagement work, which includes our volunteer program. It includes a grassroots leadership program and also community school work. So I'm able to kind of meld all of those passions of mine together. Nice, great. So you've all mentioned the Promise Partnership work a little bit so far. Could you tell us about the overall goal of the Promise Partnership and what kind of community partners are engaged in the work? So I will kind of kick us off, but I would welcome uh, Marisol and Stephanie to chime in. I think one thing that's important to understand about the Thomas Partnership is that it's a fairly large footprint. We actually have six school districts that are part of the Promise Partnership. And our goal uh, that we've developed with our Promise Partnership Regional Council is that we work 
so that all Utah kids are ready for school, better in school, and successful in life. And uh, we're very committed to the results-based accountability framework. And so we definitely sort of see that as our North Star of what we're at each um, cradle to career outcome. So kindergarten readiness, third grade reading proficiency, eighth grade math proficiency, high school graduation, post-secondary readiness, post-secondary completion, health, and financial stability, just so everyone knows what those outcomes are. We're very interested in developing results for each of those outcomes, but that they all feed into that larger result that all kids and families are really thriving is maybe another way we like to think about it. And so in terms of the partners that we engage, we really want to be truly cross-sector in our approach to the work. And so we have um, obviously nonprofits, uh, we have government agencies, we have businesses, um, and of course schools and school districts uh, that we partner with. And I would say the area that we're really um, recognizing is an area for growth is to bring in more grassroots organizations who maybe aren't as a established 501c3 nonprofits, but are really uh, generated from the interests of community members who are most impacted by um, the wicked social problems that we're all trying to address. And we're also interested in thoughtfully engaging youth and families into our networks that work it all, with all of those outcomes. And so, Stephanie's team, particularly the grassroots team, is really engaging in thought partnership with the network function, which is where I sit, to examine how to do that effectively. And correct me if I'm wrong, the work is, there is sort of a collective impact effort that is at the Greater Salt Lake scale, and then there are also partnerships that are happening in specific uh, neighborhoods or parts of the community. Is that right? I'm trying to picture sort of the scale at which all of this is operating. We see nodding. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And what are some of the accomplishments that you all are most proud of in the work of the Promise Partnership? So one of the things, uh, and, and Stephanie can certainly speak to this because she's been with the organization for 10 years at this point, but when uh, United Way of Salt Lake really made the intentional decision to become a collective impact backbone organization and convened the Promise Partnership Regional Council, they elected to start at the beginning of that, the cradle to career pipeline, right? So they focused on um, early childhood and kindergarten readiness. And so one of the the great successes related to that was actually getting a an assessment the for kindergarten readiness that is actually being applied statewide now. Um, and that was done through policy advocacy at our organization to so that we would actually know, have a sense of um, what sort of kindergarten readiness 
students had coming in and then they're also assessed at the end of kindergarten. Um, and so that's been huge because that was the space that we started in. We've also had some successes in getting funding to support uh, cross organizational pilots to try and test out interventions related to early childhood and those grants are currently um, have been dispersed and we're we're waiting for the results of that so we're excited about that and actually today February 28 2022 um, we have a bill that is uh, we have a 45-day legislative session in Utah so it goes very quickly and so this is the last week and we have a bill up on the hill that is seeking to have funding for full day optional kindergarten for any family that would like to have full day kindergarten. In Utah, where kindergarten is not required, it's optional. Uh, and a lot, most of the kindergarten in our state is half day, which can be very difficult for families um, to try and navigate. And so one of our goals for this session is to get this bill passed so that um, not only are families supported in the childcare aspects that they've been struggling with, but then the youth have more time in the classroom to really get comfortable being in school and to hopefully achieve their goals. Um, a couple other things that I would raise, we, I actually directly work on a partnership with one of our local high schools and one of our corporate partners. We've been able to get the corporate partner to um, commit to a $500,000 commitment to the high school over five years. And we're working on both a community hub where basic needs are being addressed, such as like a food pantry, they have um, laundry facilities, et cetera. And we've also been working with the community or the corporate partner, excuse me, to uh, to develop a career and technical education pathway that focuses on their the industry that they're in, which is transportation. And we're hoping to be able to scale that to a statewide um, career and technical education pathway. So, so that's been really great. Um, one other thing I would share is um, we were part of a uh, a multi organization partnership that included the American Cancer Society and um, the University of Utah, as well as, um, well, those were the three groups. And then we received some funding from Robert Wood Johnson and we used that to do a statewide survey of food insecurity for post-secondary students. So that includes both uh, degree-seeking students and technical college students. And what we, first of all, we're just really excited to have that baseline data because the different institutions had been doing surveys, but there was no consistent data set across all of the, the system of higher ed institutions. But the other piece we're really excited about is that now the institutions and the system of higher ed can use that information to really um, identify specific interventions that can support students 
on those campuses. You all have been incredibly busy. Congratulations yeah. on all of those <laughs> accomplishments. Uh, Alexis, thank you for sharing that. And I want to also ask Stephanie or Marisol, is there anything you would like to add to that since I know you're all bringing a different vantage point in? Yeah, one project that we kicked off in response to the pandemic was called Stay Safe, Stay Connected. And our goal was really to respond to the needs that students were having, being at home, trying to learn, not always having access to devices and internet. And so we were able to do a few different things with that initiative, including getting devices out to the community to members who needed it, um, getting several hundred families connected um, to a low cost or free internet access. And we also did a lot around tutoring. So we piloted a virtual tutoring program, which was very interesting. And I learned a lot about what does and doesn't work tutoring over Zoom. Um, but that was really great. And now we've been able to expand that and offer that to more of our school partners um, who want to engage in virtual tutoring. Um, and those were just a couple of the things we were able to do, as well as just providing a lot of information in multiple languages about ways that families could access rental insurance and other needs that were exacerbated by the pandemic. And many of those pieces are still continuing today. And Marisol. Uh, yeah, the the other uh, program that um, I was also able to work on um, when I joined United Way was the FAFSA Impact and Improvement Network, and that is something that I believe Alexis um, had led previously, and um, that work is uh, partnership with some of the local high schools to do um, some continuous improvement approaches to improve um, the number of completed FAFSA applications for those high schools. And so um, this year for about six months, and we're actually closing on that process uh, for this school year, we partner with two high schools um, composed of teams uh, where they have their vice principals, counselors, college advisors, uh, to look at um, different approaches on how to uh, improve those rates of completion for their for their schools. Um, those rates are very historically low in Utah, and um, with the pandemic, um, it has also not helped with those rates. But um, I know Alexis had shared that uh, in the last year, West High School was one of the high schools that. Um, actually improved their rates by 4% when um, many of the other high schools were actually struggling because of the pandemic. Um, and so that has been pretty, pretty awesome to see um, and improve those, those completion rates. Yeah, congrats. The pandemic makes it all so much more, so much more, the hard work so much more challenging even. So that's, that's great. So one of the things I alluded to um, at the start of the conversation was the unique way that you all have been staffing the, the backbone support, the facilitation, and the coordination for this partnership work. So could you tell us a little bit about how you are staffing the backbone, which sits within staff at the United Way? I'll kind of kick us off, and then we can have a more open dialogue. But I'll I'll start by saying we've we've had the network director role uh to work with our different partnerships 
and uh, especially our networks related to the cradle to career outcomes for several years. And to be totally candid, we had seen a fair amount of turnover uh, in that particular role. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One is this is adaptive work. It's really hard. And, you know, uh, you have to have a disposition where you're comfortable with that. And so I think sometimes people come into the role and just identify that it's not a good fit for them. I think when the pandemic hit and we went all virtual for essentially two years, it also felt isolating, right? Because it was like you were doing the work with your network. And, you know, we would have staff meetings and things like that, but you weren't having a lot, the same amount of interaction that we would have had previously when we were physically located in an office. And so um, we had some turnover last year and we, our organization is really committed to, and I, I highly encourage any organization to actually have exit interviews and to capture the experiences of folks and then to have that fed back to the supervisors and the leadership that worked with those individuals. And we identified some different elements um, related to the things I just described that we really were interested in solving for. And so we elected to sort of like um, you may, some people may be familiar with the consulting model where you have a senior consultant and a junior consultant. And so what we've elected to do is have a lead network director and a network director who work hand in hand uh, on all of the aspects of the collective impact backbone work together. So planning agendas, meeting with partners, and it, what it's allowed us to do so far, and I'll certainly let Marisol chime in, but my observation is um, to bring in some really great talent who may might not have hired before because these jobs can be so um, demanding and, and it requires a certain level of experience. But we're, because we have this paired model, we're able to invite folks who have all of the qualities and the qualifications that lend themselves to this work, but just need a little more time doing it to build their competency. And, um, and so that's the model that we're using to really hopefully build a talent pipeline that allows us to promote individuals in that network director role um, into lead network director positions. And Marisol is in that network director role. So I'd love to hear her um, observations and experience because she was in our first cohort of people that we brought in with this new model. So it's, um, it's been really interesting to, um, to explore it together. Yes, indeed. I joined United Way when uh, this new model was implemented. So I believe that was in July of last year, 2021. Um, and um, my first impression was that the onboarding was um, pretty helpful to be able to 
join alongside three other network directors where we're all experiencing the same onboarding process and be able to rely on each other for, for questions in areas of improvement where um, it's not just one of us uh, taking on this role and trying to navigate it alone, uh, but rather having an entire team who is experiencing all things together. Um, so that was very helpful. And um, I've actually found uh, the partnership that uh, was created with my lead supervisor and me to be extremely helpful. Um, I've gotten to work with Jessica Miller and um, Alexis is Jessica's supervisor. Um, and we get to rely on each other for um, what Alexis was mentioning uh, with the different networks, getting feedback from each other, um, navigating gaps that we may be seeing uh, and bringing uh, the, the broad experience that we, we both bring from our different uh, backgrounds. And so it has been um, very interesting where I can rely on Jessica for, for mentorship and support. Um, one thing that we have talked about, and I think one of the other pairings of network directors also expressed, is that um, it would have been maybe also nice to have our lead network director join before uh, we did, uh, just to provide some time for them to uh, be more um, able to respond to questions that we we both may be having. Uh, because there are some of those instances, but outside of that, um, it has been helpful. And um, also just when one of us is not able to attend a meeting or, or be there, uh, the other one is always in the loop of what's going on and can uh, continue forward with any of the network. So yeah, it has been overall a very, uh, very uh, learning experience for me, I, I can say. Stephanie, how about from where you sit more from the angle of the community engagement team? Yeah, so the other piece of the new model is, as Alexis and Marisol described, thinking about our work in portfolios, and then our community engagement team can plug into those different bodies of work, and that's really helped just with collaboration and moving a lot of important work forward. So, for example, you know, Alexis and Marisol have their portfolio of work. They might have internally a volunteer team member sit on the you know monthly or so meetings that they have with them and if they have a grassroots fellowship project going on they might have the grassroots fellow sitting on that too so that it really is everyone working bringing their expertise and their their skills and resources toward that same portfolio of work and that's just really helps to bring kind of clarity and direction and make sure we are all kind of working toward one body of work and that the people who need to be in those decision-making spaces are part of those spaces. I think before we were doing some great alignment at the um, kind of leadership level of our department, but now we've been able to do more alignment all throughout the department as well. Just to pause to help people kind of visualize the, um, the backbone team that's supporting, it's not a single uh, uh, often when we talk about collective impact, there's sort of a steering committee and then three or four or five work groups working on sub projects just to get people a sense of the scale. You're talking about 
you know, yes, there is the regional work and then many sub partnerships. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about um, the size of the Backbone team and how much work you all are coordinating across the region, because I think it's a lot bigger than a lot of the work that um, we often are thinking about when we think about collective impact efforts. I can start. Um, so I think last I counted, we have 20 something or so staff, and that includes some part-time, some temporary, and then mostly full-time. So we definitely have been able to build up a large backbone staff and we kind of have some overlapping um, frameworks that we utilize. And so, as you mentioned, we do have that regional network and the network team has a mix in their portfolio of those um, outcomes like eighth grade reading, third grade, or excuse me, eighth grade math, third grade reading, different outcomes that they're working toward. And then we also have portfolios with schools that we work with throughout a community school model and really supporting at the school level, making sure every student has those wraparound service and those academic supports um, at that level. And um, then there also is kind of work at the city level. So it really depends on kind of where and um, where those different pieces of work are ripe for really happening right now and who's engaged in the work. And then as far as the community engagement team, we do have about five different um, fellows who are doing six month fellowships with us where they're doing community-based research that's really informing and supporting the work that the networks are doing. Um, we also have a few volunteer team staff members. So we have thousands of volunteers every year who serve as tutors and mentors and any kind of other support that a school might need, reading with kids, serving food at a food pantry, et cetera. We're able to offer that resource because we have invested in that piece of our work. Um, and then we have some other people working specifically with administrators and teachers, helping to um, kind of align some curricular support to outside, like with the after school program, for example. So that's just at a glance, some of the different pieces, but I'm sure I missed some things. So I'll let Marcel and Alexis weigh in. That was pretty comprehensive, actually. <laughs> so you might, I, I might have heard some collective jaws drop when you said the backbone team is 20 people <laughs> when you're looking at other collective impact <laughs> efforts across the country. Um, but one of the things I, I just want to draw out a lot of what you're saying is really relevant, regardless of the size of the team and, you know, helping people, um, you know, building the talent pipeline in the community for people doing this work. Um, looking for folks who are really interested in adaptive leadership and adaptive challenges and what that looks like when you're supporting, facilitating collective impact work, helping people not feel like they're in isolation when they're playing this role, because regardless of how big the backbone team is, if you're sort of based externally trying to facilitate work without the support of colleagues and peers, like that's really hard work and so finding ways to find that kind of like peer mentorship and connection either in the backbone team or with others in the community i think is really really important so there are many other lessons probably but those are some that are really bubbling up for me regardless of the size of the backbone team um some things that are very transferable to folks all folks doing collective impact work um i'm curious if there are other things that come up for you as uh, around maybe like onboarding and building capacity of new folks joining the Backbone team or surprises or lessons that you've learned that you'd like to talk about? 
I can speak to that from my experience with uh, the onboarding process. Um, so it was really helpful to um, set goals um, for for each of us when when we came on board. Um, and those goals are some of the ones that we work towards um, for the different milestones throughout the year. And so um, within those milestones, um, there's um, some key components of developing uh, an understanding of the different collective impact methodologies and tools that support the networks. Um, so from the very beginning, there's been uh, trainings around what collective impact is, uh, results-based accountability, results-based facilitation, um, continuous improvement, and more, more, more recently we've been uh, doing some laboratory design uh, training. And so um, with all those trainings, um, we get to do together and also with the entire collective impact as a whole. I have noticed even with folks who may have already gone through those trainings as well. So um, all of that um, seems to um, provide a really good structure for um, all the different tools that, that are useful to become aware, to be able to take on the work that we do. Um, and also understanding the different ways in which our work may um, intersect with each other and seeing where, how the bigger picture of all the different network structures come together. Um, and I think those have become more clear for me recently, especially as I've had the opportunity to sit on and facilitate um, different networks and see how their network directors lead on uh, their work um, and be able to see how it relates to some of the work that I get to do as well. Um, so yeah, yeah overall, a, a lot of tools and a lot of trainings that um, really provide the structure for, for what this work is about. And I'll just add very quickly that based on I mentioned those exit interviews and some of what the feedback we received. And so we were very intentional about changing our onboarding process as we made this transition to really provide much more rigorous support to all of the network directors, whether they be lead or network directors that were coming on board. And specifically the other piece that we've been we've just begun is now that we've completed that training, doing mock facilitations together. So like a, a segment of a meeting um, as a group. So we get assigned roles and things like that. And then we give that person feedback and support them in terms of building their facilitation skills. So really um, making it a priority to support one another in gaining those skills and those competencies collectively so that we all feel comfortable doing, like I said, this this challenging adaptive work with cross-sector partners who are often are say or do things that are surprising in our meetings. And then part of our neutral facilitator role is to navigate that and support the group to collective action. I trust that many people listening will be well familiar with those <laughs> curveballs and surprises that can show up in real time in meetings, uh, for sure. 
Are there other, anything else that you have like learned so far, surprises along the way that you would like to reflect on? I'll just add that like anything, you never know what's going to happen until you try something new. So I think we're, we've gotten pretty used to identifying what needs some tweaks and making sure that everyone who will be involved in those tweaks is involved in figuring that out. Um, but also knowing that you know, I think we took time to say, let's try this for three months and do a check-in. Let's check in at six months and then continue to innovate if we're feeling like we're not quite where we want to be yet and knowing that we'll probably never get there. We just want to keep that continuous improvement mindset. So I think that's helped us a lot to know this isn't the way that it's going to be moving forward necessarily. Um, and that has helped us be really adaptable as new challenges have arisen. Oh, that's great. Bringing that continuous improvement into the backbone, not only how you're facilitating the work of your partners, but how you're uh, reflecting on your own work as well. That's terrific. Yeah, and I would just add quickly that um, one thing that that has shown up, because we did do like a, a feedback session a few weeks ago, is that um, there's a real hunger, even though we've got these groups that are coming together around the different networks in our work portfolio, there's still a real hunger for what Marisol was describing, that big picture of like how all of, everything fits together. And so we're working with the net, especially the network function, but I'm sure community engagement doing this as well, to think about our monthly meetings and how we can facilitate that learning amongst ourselves in a way that's productive and that helps us see those intersections. But we haven't found the perfect solution to that. So it's really great to have this great group of individuals who are steeped in this work to be thought partners around how to effectively do that together um, that meets their needs but also um, allows us to be as effective as possible to improve the conditions that are affecting our communities that we care about. Great, great. Is there any advice that you'd have for others around the backbone role, the staffing of the backbone function, or anything else you'd like to share with listeners today? I would say one thing that we even with as many staff as we have, as you alluded to, Jen, we have a lot of things that we're doing and sometimes we do feel spread too thin. So I would definitely encourage partnerships to examine, you know, what their staffing is or what their, you know, their resources are and be really intentional about what they're focusing on. So sort of like I described at the very top, when we first started, we, we focused on kindergarten readiness and early childhood and then, you know, scaled from there. Uh, and so I would just invite folks to, because we recognize not everyone has the resources we have and might not be able to do this structure of having folks work together, but how are you intentionally focusing your effort in a way that moves towards results and um, how are you providing all those things that we sort of 
surfaced around peer support, onboarding, all of those pieces that regardless of the size of your staff are really gonna be important to the success of your collective impact effort. I'll add to you to think creatively about any part-time positions or even temporary positions that could um, have the support and training to play that role. So we have one of our grassroots team members, she's done a couple fellowship cycles with us and is um, a community member, a parent, um, lives right in the area where a lot of the schools that we work with is. And they're taking on a lot more of some of the network function and actually facilitating some meetings and doing some of that work too and having that additional training around being a backbone staff. So I think there are some other options for if you don't just have all full-time permanent positions to think creatively about tapping into the resources, especially with community members who are really passionate um, and thinking about that talent pipeline that could be built. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I can recall some other examples in many different parts of the country that would, uh, for example, like pay the chairs, uh, the co-chairs of work groups because they didn't have enough backbone. As much, They didn't make the choice to staff up their backbone, but rather to compensate people for doing some of the facilitation work that were, for example, chairs of their work groups. So I appreciate that. Um, that bridge to thinking about other ways to provide that backbone capacity as well, not only having to be full-time staff all housed under the same roof. So thanks for that addition. Well, this has been very, very helpful to unpack the work of the Promise Partnership that's being facilitated out of the United Way of Salt Lake. I really wanna thank Stephanie, Alexis, and Marisol for joining today. Uh, we are so grateful to be able to learn from you and for you to take the time to share this uh, really innovative experience with folks in the Collective Impact Forum Network. So thank you very much. And I wish everyone a good evening. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes of this podcast. And if you're like me, and we're curious about what happened with the all-day kindergarten bill and if it passed the Utah State Legislature. It sure did and was signed by Utah's governor in March 2022. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the pasts, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music to this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and the outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in learning together, registration is closing soon for our Virtual Collective Impact Action Summit that will be held on April 26th through 28th, 2022. The Action Summit is our biggest learning event of the year, with over 25 virtual sessions focusing on topics like culture and narrative change, shifting power, data, and sustainability. And a big plus for being virtual is that recording many of the sessions and sharing those recordings with attendees after. So you'll be able to plan a schedule that fits best with you and watch other sessions later. We hope you can join us later this month. Please visit the events section of collectiveimpactforum.org to learn more about this year's Collective Impact Action Summit. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. 
I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.